So this morning, we are going to uh, look at uh, those few verses in the book of Revelation. Um, those verses are extremely rich and full, and we could spend quite a few hours uh, looking at every image that is being used and where it's coming from and what it's meant to teach. Uh, I don't think you would have that patience. Um, but um, So I'll try to, to help you see the, 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 the core message of those verses. Now, um, I don't know what was said last week about the book of Revelation. Uh, I don't know what was said about the way John writes. Um, so I may repeat a few things that you've already heard, but repetition is, uh, is not bad. It's actually pretty good. Um, thank you. Um, the book of Revelation was written for a number of churches, uh, which are named a number of times, actually, through the epistle. Uh, churches that would be in what today we call Turkey, in the western side of Turkey, uh, near the coast. And uh, those are churches that were um, suffering from uh, different forms of uh, persecution, but were also tempted by... Uh, the seductions of the Roman Empire and uh, all the pleasures and glories of cities, of the art, knowledge, and all those things. And so the book is written to encourage the church to strengthen the courage of believers, but also as a warning against some of the dangers uh, that they are facing and especially the risk of uh, abandoning the faith, of abandoning uh, the, uh, the responsibility to be witnesses. And so um, the book is there to kind of unveil what's happening, to explain to them the meaning of what they are facing, both in terms of the threats and the... Uh, seductions that they had to deal with in their world. And, and beyond that, um, the book is there to reveal Jesus Christ and what Jesus has accomplished, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will be doing uh, uh, when he returns as a, um, as a means to reassure, comfort, strengthen the faith of those believers. Now, John... Uh, writes in a way um, where he, he, he seems to be repeating himself a number of times. He writes a bit in circles, which is probably not uh, too unfamiliar to a number of you because that's, that's the way um, uh, Asians tend to tell stories or to, to deal with things. They, they kind of go around in circles and repeat the same things again. It, it's not exactly repeating itself. It's not just getting the same disc to go around and around and around. You, you, you add new information. You, 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 you move forward as you do that. To a Western ear, it sounds like you, you're just um, not going anywhere. But uh, to an Asian ear, you actually know that you're actually going somewhere and you actually learn from it. Uh, and John is, of the New Testament writers, is the one who writes the most like that. Uh, especially if you read his epistles, you'll feel you'll feel that he's just uh, going like a you know a bit like if you put um, a light on the wheel of a bike, you know it it makes this uh, this pattern where it's like a circle that moves forward at the same time. 
so it's it's the same in the book of Revelation. He uh, uses cycles, things that come back and again and again. Um, and he does that in the beginning of the book also. You know, if you've you've been through uh, the first eight verses, and in the first eight verses he already uh, announces basically the key points of the whole book. And then in verses nine through twenty. He actually goes back to those same things and repeats them in a slightly different manner. And then in the chapters that will follow, he will get back to them again and again and again. So in some ways, uh, having been here last week, you've already heard a number of things uh, that are repeated here. Um, Another aspect of of this book is that it, it is using a lot of images. It is using a lot of symbols. Now, it's not a, a book that requires a, uh, a secret key or some kind of a code that you need to break to make sense of it. A lot of it is actually pretty, pretty obvious. The reason we find it confusing is because we try to look for something much more complicated than it really is. We try to find some really complex uh, uh, patterns and images, and we try to find meaning to all details. And it's not really what it is. Most of it are pretty clear pictures. In fact, typically, children understand the book way better, way better than adults because they don't look for all those complicated things. They just look at the picture kind of that is, that is being uh, drawn and they get the point. We're the ones who want to find all those complicated things and then get confused. Um, so John is using a lot of images here in those few verses uh, and those are actually mostly drawn from the Old Testament. Uh, this morning, uh, asked that we read uh, Daniel chapter, uh, part of Daniel chapter seven, and I'm sure you've already heard a number of echoes, a number of things that you hear in Daniel are, are repeated word for word in Revelation. Uh, we could have read more. We could have read uh, other chapters of Daniel, especially chapter ten, where the Son of Man is described again. Um, but we could also have read in the book of Ezekiel or Zechariah. Um, and you can also go back all the way to the book of uh, Deuteronomy and the book of the Exodus, where, where the, the tabernacle is described with the lampstands and all those things. So John is going back to the Old Testament and drawing all those pictures, all those images, and bringing them together to describe what he saw, to describe in particular his vision of the risen Christ. And he's using those pictures to tell us a lot about who he is and what he is now doing for the church. Now, the context of all of this, again, as I said, is a suffering church. Um, if If you pay attention, as you look at your New Testament, you will realize that a lot of the letters that you find in the New Testament were written for churches in that same area. Most New Testament letters were written to churches in what is today Turkey, and especially that particular part of Turkey. And uh, in particular, if you read 1 Peter, you'll see that some of the churches in view in 1 Peter are those very churches. And in 1 Peter, we see that um, they are already facing opposition from the surrounding population. They are not yet being persecuted in, in, uh, in, in violent ways, but uh, they are being rejected 
by the people around them. They are treated um, like aliens, strangers, foreigners, people that we don't really want to talk to. And uh, they are already facing some level of oppression. When we come to the book of Revelation, it looks like that situation has worsened. And the uh, uh, opposition that they're facing is much harsher than it was when First Peter, when First Peter was written. And in particular, what John tells us here in verse 9, or what John um, hints at in verse 9, is that this persecution, this suffering, what he calls, uh, to use a a good old English word, tribulations, um, are related to the fact that they are witnesses of Jesus Christ. Suffering for Christians is connected with the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ and that in our life, individually or as families, and even more as a church community, is a witness to Jesus Christ. Not only with what we say and what we proclaim, but also in the way we live our lives. And that in itself is cause for rejection, for oppression, and for persecution. If you read verse 9, John actually uh, introduces himself. He says, uh, I, John, your brother and fellow heir uh, in, the, um, um, in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance in Jesus. He's defining himself, but also he's defining us. He's defining our identity as Christians in the churches. And that identity is in Jesus. In other words, if we want to know who we are, and if we want to understand what we're going through, we have to know who Jesus is and what he's been through, because this is what we are. Who we are is defined by that. Our life is framed around the life of Jesus. And then John continues and talks about the fact that He is on the island called Patmos uh, because, or um, um, on account of, um, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is himself persecuted. He was sent in some sort of exile on the island of Patmos, an island which is actually not far from the coast of Turkey. And he was sent there for only one reason, or actually two reasons, I guess. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because he is a witness, because he proclaims the word of God, because he proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ, he's sent away in exile somewhere where we won't hear him. Somewhere where he won't be a problem anymore. So in his own life, in his own experience, he already represents the experience and life of the church at large. He has the exact same experience as those believers to whom he's writing. He knows exactly what they're going through. And so you see there's a chain of kind of people and lives. You have John, who describes his own experience, 
the churches which um, share in that same experience, and you have Jesus, who is the one uh, in whom they are connected, but from whom also uh, they receive uh, their identity, and uh, because, of, because of whom they know the same persecution. And the heart of it, what he says they have in common, of course, first is that he is their brother. And that's a big thing. Uh, we are united as Christians. We're all united. We're all brothers and sisters. We have one father, the father. And we are all united in Christ. As we are one with Christ, we are one with one another. And here you have John, an apostle, who tells, speaks to those Christians and says, you're just a, your brother. I'm just like you. It's not because he's an apostle that he's in a different, different scale. He's somewhere else in a different category. No, he's just a brother like them. He's a Christian like them. He's a witness of Christ like them. And he's suffering like them. There's nothing special or super spiritual or exceptional in what he's going through. This is the normal experience for Christians. But then he goes on and speaks about the fact that he's, uh, he shares um, in their suffering, in their tribulation, in their, um, um, in their difficulties. That's something that they have in common. But he also shares in the kingdom or, um, let's say, in their, in their reign, in their rule in the kingdom and in their perseverance. Those three words kind of de- define what it's all about. John speaks here as if the Christian life is, by definition, a life of suffering, a life of trouble. Nowhere in the New Testament are we told that Becoming a Christian meant that everything was going to be right in this life. On the contrary, if there's one thing that defines the Christian life, it is suffering. It is trouble. If our Lord had a life of suffering, we, his disciples, we, his children, we who are being formed in his image will know suffering, opposition, and trouble. At the same time, through those troubles, through those difficulties, we grow in perseverance, we grow in faithfulness. And as, like Christ, like Christ resisted the temptation like Christ resisted seduction and fear, we can also resist those. We can persevere to the end. And as we persevere through suffering, we exercise the rule, the kingdom, dominion over this world and over the forces that would seek to undo us. Those go together. Suffering is the path that God has set for his son and for us. But through that path, he gives us the strength to persevere, to remain faithful, 
And as we do so, we are experiencing the kingdom. We are living out the kingdom. We are the kingdom present here and now. This kingdom that cannot be seen, that is invisible. So this is really the core of the message of those verses, but really of the book of Revelation. It's all about this. It's all about our faithfulness. And in particular, what John has in view is not only our, our ability to uh, resist temptation and not sin, though that is part of it, as you will see in the letters that follow, the letters to the churches. Um, uh, but primarily, it is our faithfulness in being witnesses. This is really what he has in view. It's not just the fact that we can be faithful and not sin. Um, it's more that as we do that, we are witnesses of Jesus Christ. It's also that we are witnesses in an active manner as we go out and proclaim the salvation that God accomplished in Jesus Christ. This is really what John has in view as he talks about all those things. The, the, the perspective, the lens that he has on this is the role of the church and of individual believers to be sharing the gospel with their neighbor. Especially neighbors who don't want to hear it or neighbors who would be responding negatively to it that would, could be aggressive. He paid the price. John paid the price. The Christians that he's writing to are paying the price. We have today brothers and sisters who are willing to pay the price. Are we ready to pay that price? So John tells us about his own experience, and that's kind of, that gives the tone, that gives the, a bit of a preview of what it's all about. And from there, he moves on to the vision he had. So he's explaining that um, uh, as he was in the spirit, he, re- he heard behind him a great voice, uh, a voice that was, I guess, very loud, like trumpets could be. I don't know. Uh, personally, I really don't like the sound of trumpets. I don't like it. Uh, to me, uh, it sounds like uh, I'm, a, I'm in a traffic jam and people are just honking. But um, one thing that I take from that, it's, 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 it's loud. You can't miss it. You can't, um, you can't not hear it. it. You hear it, and it just wakes you up and uh, probably gives you a start, especially when it's in the back. You know, he, he, nothing prepared him for it. It just... And that great voice said, what you see, write in a book. And send what you've seen, what you've written, send it to seven churches, and then gives a list of those seven churches. And uh, some of those names are a little hard to read and pronounce, aren't they? Um, so this is a typical vision, um, typical uh, um, prophetic vision, where a, a, a prophet is set aside for a particular task, where God gives him a message or a task and, and, and prepares it for it. And there, there are typical features to it. The first one is that he's not prepared for it. It's not that he did anything to, to get that vision. He, has, he hasn't been fasting and doing some kind of mystical exercise to actually get to a, have a mystical vision. He's minding his own business, 
and um, and I guess God is rude enough to interfere and just show up unannounced and talks to him in a way where for which he's not prepared. He doesn't, you know, he's just surprised by it. And so the typical pattern is you have this happening. You have a first. Um, um, a first, uh, you hear the message a first time, and uh, then you see the, uh, the the reaction of the prophet, which is usually that he he falls down um, because of fear, especially, and then God intervenes through um, either directly or through another heavenly um, means to touch the prophet to bring him back on his feet. And then the message is repeated and explained. And you see that pattern quite a number of times uh, in the pr- uh, prophetic literature. And that's what's happening here. The message is simple. Write down what you see and send the book to the seven churches. Now, of course, um, if we look at that, we can say, well, then we can close that book and not read it, because if it's sent to those seven churches in Asia Minor, that wasn't sent. I don't see Kuala Lumpur in there um, or anything else. So um, why seven? Well, seven, as you probably know already, is a symbolic number that usually means uh, totality. And so uh, in the scriptures, often, especially in uh, that type of literature, when you use seven, what you mean is the whole of it like the seven spirits in the first, uh, in the first section of the, of the book. And so really what is in view is, is, is the whole church, the church of all times and all places. But those seven churches are, are like representative of the whole. And the seven letters kind of deal with all the types of issues that a church can face, whether you're in Asia Minor or anywhere else. So it's really for us, but that's why the, symbol, the symbolism of the seven is important. Um, and so he's, he's to, to pay attention to things that will be shown to him, and he has to write them down uh, and then send that to the churches. Um, and so as he hears that message, what does he do? I mean, if you have someone who calls you and talks to you in, in your back, usually what is your first, what first... You just turn around to see who's talking to you. That's exactly what he does. He turns around and he sees the voice. Have you ever seen a voice? I mean, I know there's a TV show called The Voice, but uh, other than that, um, have you ever seen a voice? Um, it's, it's funny that he would speak this way. Um, but really, what he's talking is, he's saying he's, he saw the one who spoke, basically. But he's... he's by saying it this way, he's putting, I guess, the spot on the fact that it's a voice, somebody speaking, and proclaiming, giving him a message. It's also a way, again, for those um, prophetic visions. Uh, typically, they don't really describe the person they see, especially if it's a figure of God, directly. They describe it by talking about what's around it, like Isaiah We'll speak about the robe, we'll speak about the throne, he will speak about the temple, the seraphim, but he never tells you anything about the person sitting on that throne. Uh, so in the same way, he's kind of indirectly talking about what he saw through the voice that spoke to him. And so that, that voice continues speaking to him, and uh, as he turns around and sees that, he 
tells us that he sees seven lamps, seven lamps, seven lampstands of gold. And in the middle of those, there is one who is like a son of man. Exactly the same expression as what you heard in Daniel. He's making reference to the same person. And that person is clothed um, with a long robe and with a, I guess the translation was a sash, something around his waist, around his, 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 uh, his middle. Uh, and it's also gold. Um, and those are, this description uh, is a description of a priestly dress. It's the kind of clothing that a priest would, would wear in the temple, in the tabernacle. Um, and of course, um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you will know that the lampstand is an important feature in the tabernacle and in the temple um, that the priest was supposed to tend to. They were taking care of it. Uh, and so the, the picture here is already, we are already in a... Um, in the presence of God in his own temple. Um, it, it's not a... The reference is very clear to us. And in fact, the whole book of Revelation uh, is, is uh, peppered with scenes of worship and praise of God. And we see God in his temple being worshipped by, by all of creation and by, whole, by all his people and the whole universe and so th- this is where we are already. You see, we, we've just moved from Patmos to the heavenly temple. And then he continues describing what he sees. And, you know, he says his head and his hair was white like wool and like snow, um, which uh, obviously is very white and would be a, uh, quite striking. And then his eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, we're going back to Daniel, the description of the figure that Daniel sees, um, of both the figure of the Ancient of Days, which is a reference to God himself and to the Son of Man. And here the two are are starting to be brought together. And then he describes his feet, which are like bronze. And there's there's debate about exactly what is said here, if it's the bronze that that has been uh, made through a... uh, a furnace, or if it's a bronze that has been heated by a furnace and would be kind of radiating the heat and the light afterwards. But the point is clear. It's something that is very solid, and it's something that is shiny uh, and, and beautiful. And combined with the picture of the whiteness and the robe probably is also a reference to his purity and holiness. And his voice, I guess he continues speaking, his voice is like... Um, great waters, uh, like, like a flood. Um, it's very noisy, it's very powerful, it's very impressive. Uh, I guess that goes well with the picture of the trumpets before. And those, those call back a lot of stories from the Old Testament, but in particular Sinai, Mount Sinai, where God met Moses and gave his law to his people, and his voice was like thunder and was so powerful and scary that the people said, please don't talk to us directly. Talk to him, pointing to Moses, and kind of stay away from us. You're dangerous. You're scary. 
and of course, um, John continues to, re- to describe a bit the person, the person he sees, but the reaction to that will be that he will fall down himself, terrified. Um, so he, he looks at that figure, and that figure has uh, in his right hand seven stars, and later the seven stars will be told what they are. Uh, and he has a, uh, a long sword coming out, of, coming out of his mouth. That's a strange image, isn't it? Um, that wouldn't be very convenient for speaking. Um, of course, uh, the image there is, is multiple, but uh, a few things there that would be pretty simple is um, swords were made at, in that time period. The, the, the shape they had was they often looked like a lion or some other fierce animal opening its mouth, and the blade itself would be like coming out of it. So you'd have the, uh, I guess, the handle... And the hilt would be in the shape of a mouth of a fierce beast, and then the sword would come. So that's probably where the imagery is coming from. It's actually a picture of, a, of, of swords as they were known, but also it's a reference to the word of God and the power of the word of God and its ability to discern what is true from what is false, what is good from what is bad. And also the word of God is uh, the, his word of judgment, and salvation. So it's this very powerful reality which eventually will determine the eternal destiny of every single one of us. So it's a reference to Christ being not only a, a, a king and a powerful warrior, but also the judge uh, who rules over his church and over the whole world. And then he describes just his general appearance. He's like the sun, when, it, when the sun shines in all its strength, uh, as you know, you cannot look at the sun very long. Uh, so you can imagine the, uh, this picture, this, this character who is sh- um, radiating with a powerful light. Um, that would be a scary thought. That would be a scary sight. Uh, you understand why? As he saw that, immediately he fell to the ground. Like, like dead. By fear. By t- terror. I think that's the proper reaction when you meet someone like the risen Lord of Lords. When you see him in all his glory, and especially when you see him in his divine glory. But we also see the grace at work here because that same person touches him. And as he touches him, he's able to put him back on his feet, to strengthen him. And the first words out of his mouth to John that are reported to us is, do not fear. Do not fear. What he's described of Jesus here, this priest, this king, this judge, this person who has a message for his churches, this, this being that has, was dead and is now alive, this being who is eternal, all of this is told us, is described for us, so that we would not fear.
Do not fear. And then this figure described himself as, I am the first and the last. Just the I am is actually, as you, you probably have heard that before, but the expression in Greek is, is meant to be a reference to the name of God as it is revealed to Moses just before the Exodus, as Moses is sent to Israel to free them from slavery. I am the first and the last. Just in verse 8, just before, we heard God himself say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which is another way of saying I am the first and the last. I am everything. Everything is within my control. Everything is, um, is under my rule. And then that person continues and says, I am the living one, the one who lives. I was dead, or I died. But see, now I am alive. I am living forever. He's the God of life. He is the one that even death could not control. There's nothing more powerful for us or more scary, terrifying than death. But Christ has overcome death. And he is the living one. That's, that's like a definition of who he is. Living. Alive. Forever. He is life itself. He is the one who gives life. And he continues that image by saying, And I have the keys of death and of uh, the Hades, which is the place where the dead are. Um, Meaning that if he has the keys, that means he controls it. He can open the door, he can close the door. He has all authority over it. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Because I am the one who lives and I have the keys. I am in power. I am in charge. I died. And I am now alive again. And so, verse 19, he continues by saying, Therefore, because, in other words, because I am the one that has just been described, for that very reason, write. Write what you see, things that are, things that will be. Probably talking about the different visions that he will, he will be uh, seeing and will be uh, writing down. Write them. Because of who I am, write those things. Send that, those, those visions, those, those, this book, to the churches for their encouragement, for their strengthening. And in verse 20, he starts explaining what the vision is about, the different symbols. And he tells John, the mystery of the, of the seven stars that you have seen uh, in, my, in my right hand, those uh, seven uh, stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches. And the uh, seven lampstands are the seven churches. There's a bit of debate about what those angels, what the reference is. If it's the pastor of the church or if it's some kind of uh, heavenly being who's supposed to be representing the churches and kind of creating a connection between the church on earth and the Lord in heaven and kind of keeping the, the, the link. It's not exactly clear exactly what is in view. What is clear, however, is that Christ 
not only takes care of the churches, like a priest takes care of, of the lamps in the temple and makes sure that they, they never run out of oil or that the wick will not burn up or anything. He's always t- taking care of those lamps, but he's also the one who has in his hand, in his power, those who are supposed to represent and care for those churches. And there's, there's a constant link between us on earth and he in heaven. So you see how in this, these few verses, we already have a pretty substantial uh, teaching about not just the situation of the church on earth, but also how Christ provides for his church. And how Christ um, has in himself the power and the authority to care for us in all circumstances. And so this, this phrase, those two words that the risen Christ tells John, do not fear. It's not just for John. It is for all of us. Do not fear. Whatever is going on, whatever your circumstances, whatever the uh, oppression, whatever the persecution, whatever the frustrations, whatever the challenges of the Christian life, whatever the difficulties of being witnesses where you are, do not fear. Because our Lord is the living one. He is in control. He is taking care of us. He is providing for us at all times, in all ways. He has faced the same things and he has overcome. And he will care for us and take us through these. So that in the end, you will see in a few months, I guess, in the end, we will be with him for eternity in his presence, in his fellowship, and in the fellowship of the saints, the communion of the saints, forever and ever and ever. This is basically the message of the whole book. That it will, it will describe the different challenges, where they're coming from, what they mean, and it will also show how Christ is the one who takes care of us through them, and by taking care of us through them, leads us to the new creation and the new Jerusalem and to the very presence of God forever, forever and ever. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we, we praise you, we thank you, we worship you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you are a God who reveals himself, a God that does not leave us in the dark, but came to us, in fact made himself like us to come and save us from our sin, save us from the condemnation of sin. You have, sh- you, have, uh, uh, you have shown the light of your truth, the light of the gospel. We ask, Father, that you would impress on us the security, the safety that we have in Christ, that you, ha- you would help us see through the different things that scare us or that seduce us in this life, in this world. And that we would be able to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, 
Jesus who died, but he is now alive. Jesus whom you raised from the dead and who now reigns in heaven at your right hand forever. Help us, Father, to remember that we are in his hands, that he is caring for us like a priest is caring for us, that he has done everything that needed to be done, and that he is now ruling over us and interceding for us and leading us in all things so that in the end we will inherit your kingdom. We will inherit the earth, the entire universe that you will be recreating and that we will be with you forever and ever. And it's in the name of our Lord and Savior that we pray. Amen. Amen.